if I could change the attitude of people to look a little beyond what they're doing every day and the negativity that sometimes goes around it and find this little positive spark somewhere that gives them that energy to go on and to enjoy their life. It could be their family. So my mantra is, who haven't you hugged lately? Just walk to that person and give them a big hug. Just to show that you care. From Hamsterwheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nickel. On today's show, I'm joined by the multi-talented Yola Kirpenstein. Yola graduated from Utrecht Vet School in Holland and promptly moved to the US where he completed his residency training in small animal surgery and master's degree at Kansas State University. He followed this with a fellowship in surgical oncology at Colorado State. In 93, Yola returned to Europe as a surgical oncology and soft tissue surgeon at Utrecht University. In February of 2005, he was appointed as professor in surgery at the University of Copenhagen and in August 2008, Professor in Soft Tissue Surgery at Utrecht University again. He is a diplomat of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and received the titles of Founding Fellow in Surgical Oncology and Minimally Invasive Surgery, both from the American College of Veterinary Surgeons. A former president of Wasava, Yola has been recognized with many awards, including the prestigious BSAVA Simon Awards and Wasava's President's Award. Now, Yola currently works for Hills Pet Nutrition as the Chief Professional Veterinary Officer, where he leads all professional activities in the United States. And before we jump into the episode, let me just drop a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the VetEx Thrive Community. If you are a young vet looking to find your feet in veterinary medicine, grow your confidence, avoid burnout, and beat your inner imposter, then not only should you listen to Yola, but you should also join the VetEx Community. As a member, you will receive success skills training modules, live mentoring sessions, and actionable toolkits to help you thrive in your career. A year-long membership of this community is available for just £275. Yes, you heard that correctly. And if you use the promo code PODCAST, then you'll get another 10% off. Please head to vetxthrive.com to redeem the offer and take control of your career. Now back to the show. Yola is one of a handful of people who truly meet the criteria of being a global citizen with a career that stands out as much for its life experience as it is its academic brilliance. He's probably best, if somewhat confusingly described as two-part surgeon, one-part oncologist, two-parts businessman, one-part unashamed tech geek, one-part ninja-level networker, and three-parts fearless adventurer. So if your head is spinning, then relax, because being Dutch, he is also pretty chill. So sit back. And please enjoy my conversation with the simply superb Yola Kirpenstein. So welcome to another edition of Blunt Dissection. I'm going to set the scene for a second. Wonderful views out of this hotel. I have to say it's just like this golden crown that just, or box actually, that just springs up out of the desert. And it looks magnificent from the outside, but from the inside, looking away out over the desert to the hills in the distance and to my surprise there's a lot of snow or a dusting of snow on those hills beautiful blue sky a few a few clouds and of course we are in las vegas the dry air of the desert but i don't think this is going to be a dry conversation i am joined today by somebody i have to say you've got a very relaxing voice i'm very i'm very pleased to get you on the podcast 
because I think you're, I think our accents, we're going to have a great European accent off today. I know. That's going to be good. Oh, how, how nice. And, and you're is the that? first one that tells me that I have a soothing uh, voice. Because when I listen to my own voice, I don't know if you have the same problem, but when you listen to your own voice, it sounds really weird when it's taped. And so I feel that I have the worst audio voice ever. <laughs> So we, thank we, you. I think we all feel like that. We're not, like there's a stage where I think you just go through a stage where you've listened to your own voice enough and you you can't cringe anymore. And people like accents. Oh, yeah, yeah. So the accent is good. So I need to keep the accent. But I, I have total imposter syndrome about my voice So and hearing <laughs> my voice. And I have to say that uh, in my career, when I try to, for instance, sing, people have made remarks that I I don't have the best singing voice in the world, and so. No uh, wait, hold so on. You said in your career. Are we talking? Did you have a, a previous career, career no, as a singer, no, no, or no, is this no, karaoke? No, at the no, bar? I wish, yeah, you know, <laughs> ka- mainly karaoke in in the bar in Tokyo, and then people uh, made videos. So the bar in Tokyo. That's yeah. a whole podcast episode mm-hmm. in itself. I yeah, suspect. Yeah. So. It's customary for me to introduce by name my guests. Yay, there he goes. <laughs> Jolly Kirpenholsteinberger. Yeah. <laughs> like you must I get I get problems with my name. You must have a nightmare. You get problems with your name? I do. Really? But I mean they probably don't pronounce it the right way. It's a mild mispronunciation where I turn French, so I get a lot of people calling me Dave Nicole. Nicole. Nicole, papa. Yeah, yeah. It's a little French, a little bit of France in there. Exactly. It feels like the name was zhuzhed a little bit when it's a bit more guttural, sort of global stops. Maybe you're a descendant from Mary Queen of Scots and she was from France, so... Probably. Could it be? Probably am. Probably. Almost certainly. Probably. (laughs) That sounds good. I don't think there's any royal blood in my DNA there, I suspect. (laughs) So how do we pronounce your name correctly, Jolle? So the official Dutch pronunciation, so I'm Dutch, is Jolle. It's my first name. Phonetically, Y-O-L-A. That's how I try to explain it here in the US. Then my last name is Kirpenstein in the US or Kirpenstein in Dutch. And it is a little bit difficult because it has a lot of silent letters in there, so it throws people off. So the official American pronunciation is Jolly Kirpenstigen. <laughs> so you, I mean, when you're throwing consonants in that sequence, you can see why people get a little bit tripped. The up Dutch by are that. really good at that. So oh yeah, totally useless consonants. So what does it mean? Does it- Jolie in yep. French is. Yep. Bright, happy. Yeah, happy, yep. nice, uh, beautiful. It's a Frisian name. So Frisian is a dialect in, in Dutch that nobody understands when you're Dutch, except when you live in Friesland, very close to the Scandinavian languages. Okay. So, and my grandmother was uh, Frisian. So that's why I got the name. It's not very common in Holland. And uh, and the last name, I have no idea. Stein is, is Castle. Kirpen, I have no idea what it is. Uh, but when I was young, they said uh, chicken castle. So, chicken castle. Yeah, because kip is chicken in Dutch. So ha- Happy chicken castle. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> happy chicken castle. That's my, you know, that sums it up. So now we're done with the podcast. That's me in, That's in, in three seconds. I think we can wrap things up there. Hold on. It's good. So thanks Excellent. for listening, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> now, see, I spent a lot of time in Holland as a child. My family, my father particularly, loves cycling. Yeah. And so, obviously, you know, if you, if you like cycling, Holland's a great place to, to go. Yes. And um, I hate cycling. But let's go there because I like why you're saying this. And I will explain why I hate cycling 
with a passion. So. Okay, okay, great. Huh. So my parents would book holidays in little islands just off the north of Tessel? Tessel. Tessel. Yeah, a little island. T E X E L. Yeah, right. Correct. Very good. And we'd get the ferry from Den Helder. So we'd get the we'd fly to Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam, yeah. get the train up to Den Helder and then yeah. the ferry across. And then and it's one of the weirdest places in the world because I'm absolutely certain that regardless of the direction we were cycling, the wind was always blowing against us. Okay, so that's point number one. Excellent. So right. You're hitting it, right? Nail on the head. Nonetheless, what wonderful memories I have. So um, I'm fascinated I, I, to hear more about your Yeah, no, I think when you your cycle... Of cycling. Yeah, yeah you, you know, when you cycle on Tesla on one of the beautiful uh, barrier islands in Holland, I think that's an amazing amazing thing to do it's it's more leisure cycling i'm I, yeah. so why do i hate cycling so much because we lived in a beautiful area in the middle of holland uh, with my parents and i had to go to school and every day i had to cycle for about 45 minutes from where we lived and we lived on the top of a hill to the school um wind rain sleet it didn't matter we had to cycle that distance so every day i was one half hour on the bike and then you get really as a kid really get to hate cycling because in holland it rains 90 percent of the day so 90 percent of the time so it rains you're more than it does in glasgow by the signs of it i hate the rain so it's it's kind of gray the weather it's it's like seattle weather here in the u.s when i see cycling i always remember the wind and the rain horizontal rain hitting me while I tried to cycle to school. And normally I was late, so I had to pace the cycling a little bit. And then I was in my little plastic outfit because to prevent from being completely soaked in the cold, in the rain. And so that's my feeling with cycling. So I know a lot of people uh, take these new inside cycles and they're like, oh, I'm on this this program and I'm cycling and I'm doing a mountain. I'm like, oh my God, I will never, ever buy a thing like that because this internal hate of cycling is there. And, you know, anybody that loves cycling, good for you. But I like biking and biking is for me leisure biking. It needs to be sunny, no wind, no hills, because the bad thing about the hill was, so you had a whole day of school, and then the last thing, while you were completely soaking wet, was cycling upon that hill. It's, uh, it's nothing for me. So even don't ask me to cycle for a good cause, especially not uphill. That's character building, that mm-hmm. is. You know, I have really good legs because of it. <laughs> I'm grateful for that. Yeah, exactly. So your name is from the Frisian... My first name. My first name. name. My grandmother is from that area. So I am from the middle of Holland. So I was born very close to Utrecht in a little town called Tienhoven. And then I stayed in that area. My my parents moved quite a lot. So in Holland itself, uh, the biggest part of my uh, growing up was in a little town called Renen, which is a beautiful little city. And so I spent quite a lot of time there. That's where my cycling uh, disgust came from. But uh, for the rest, it's gorgeous there. You know, in general, Holland is a wonderful country to live right. in. What did your parents do that you were moving around so much? That's a good question. So my mother was a professional harpist. So, yeah, so I have a very, very musical family. And I always say that, so my my grandmother was an opera singer. My grandfather was the head of a very famous orchestra, Rotterdam Philharmonic. My father was a very good flute player. My mother was a professional harpist. Music is everywhere in my family. And then it kind of skipped a generation with me, my brother, and my sister. 
did it skip it completely or i love music i love music but yep. just me performing that's what it skipped so I... and the interesting thing is my uncle is a was a very relatively famous Dutch painter, and I got the painting skills. So I didn't get the musical skills. Uh, I got the the color and painting skills a little bit. Not that I'm good as good as he was, but so the funny thing with the music thing is that I hated music and playing music for quite a long. And my parents were really wonderful because they said, okay, first you have to play an instrument that you don't like, which is the flute, to see how well you're doing. Yep. And then you can choose an instrument that you like. And I was at the time that when I was choosing my instrument, I was like, I was like, okay, what would be the instrument that would be most irritating to anybody? <laughs> and mostly your parents. Yeah, mostly my parents. <laughs> so I didn't have to play that for that long. And so I was thinking about the drums, which was killed by my father really quickly, that idea. And then <laughs> I came out to be the trumpet. And ah. so uh, that took about two years of me trumpet playing after they let me go. So, <laughs> so I'm not, don't let me sing. Don't let me, you know, yesterday I was at the opening ceremony here and I had to play the drums and I had to practice quite a lot because my rhythm feeling is not that good either. So having just said that you, the musical thing skipped a generation, you play flute, trumpet, you're playing drums to a high enough standard that you're playing them at an opening ceremony as part of the band. Yeah. I'm detecting a certain amount of uh, humbleness here. No, 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 like. no. Absolutely not. No, no. I, you know, you should hear my mother play. That is at a level that is so much higher. This is just child's play. I love music. I mean, I cannot live without music. What genres of music do you like? And, and what sort of influence on your life does music have? So I like almost any kind of music. I know I'm going to hurt a lot of people here. I'm not the biggest fan of pure country and Western. Uh, I call it's it country just, or Western. It's just as well we're not in Nashville. And, and no, no, I know. So, uh, but, and I know that a lot of people really like it here. So some songs I really like. I'm not into really hard, heavy metal. But for the rest, anything. I love opera. I love classical. I love dance music. I love, I mean, there's so many f ways of expressing this artistic feeling that people have. I, I love rap, for instance. I mean, it's crazy. So I'm pretty much from the whole spectrum, certain things. And it's, it's kind of anything when I think about it, because when I talk about classical music, for instance, organ music, I cannot stand. Yeah. Very like strange. stuff at churches and things? Um, or? No, just organs in general. So when I have to go to a pure organ play, I'm like, okay, I can skip that. The rest is, you know, put me anywhere where's music and I love it. You're just there. Is it the sound? Is it the expression? Like, what does music, how does it grab you in a certain way? And do you use music in other ways? You know, like, I know some people like people really into sport they're using that for stress management mm. as much mm. as anything and you know I, mu I love music as well and, and I parents are musical to your family's degree and actually something you said there I noticed a pattern of parents getting us to learn instruments that are pure torture for us mm. so my parents asked not asked but basically made me play violin oh and I had a Actually, she wasn't, it would be mean to call her a horrific teacher. She was probably a very good teacher. I yeah. was a horrific student. That's exactly my story. Right, because so. I just hated to do it. Yeah. And then I self-taught myself guitar when I went to university. I thought you were going to say something different to what you said, like why you chose it. So you chose it to the thing that you could play for the least amount of time. <laughs> I chose the instrument based on, like, what's the instrument that I'm going to be able to 
girls are going to find it as attractive as possible. And really? I'm like, guitars, right? Guitar. Yeah, yeah. So then I picked up yeah. guitar. And-, and, the, and the interesting thing is just to, why I say it skipped a generation, because the kids of both my brother and my sister are awesome. I mean, one of the kids of my sister is, you know, a guitar player and he's just unbelievable. Uh, went to music school. The daughter of my brother is the same way. She has an incredible voice. So, you know, this music genes are in our family tree, obviously. Yeah. Did your parents do something different with you? Like, I'm just imagining, you know, they were professional musicians and I suppose it's like us being professional veterinarians. Mm. At the end of the day, the last thing you want to do is go home and talk about, about veterinary medicine. Although lots of us you know, particularly if, if people are married to other vets and they probably do that 24 hours a day or whenever they're awake. Did your parents do something different with you compared to then, you know, the next generation in your family who, who seem to re-engage with it? I'm just thinking, because one of the books that I've just finished reading is Bounce by Matthew Said. Okay. And it's such an incredible exploration of how practice is is the real talent. You know, it's, talent shows up and, and we believe it to be like, ingrained and genetic but it's sort of practice i just was curious whether you're you know there was something different in your parents approach with you compared to the next generation i think my parents immersed our family in music and i love that part so i i had never the feeling that my parents really forced anything upon us uh, but they did want to have us go through it so i can read music i you know i understand music I can enjoy music. So that's what they taught me. And then they probably found out pretty soon that I was not the prodigy child that they might have hoped in the music field. But then they stimulated me to do other things. So I'm here because of my parents and their you know, undevoted support. So I think that the nice thing about nature is nature is playing with everybody. So, Okay, so now you have two very successful parents in the music field, and instead of nature saying, okay, now we're making little musical children, they just screw it up completely and say, okay, let's do with this and put some extra genes in there, and now we have this person that's going to be an excellent veterinarian from that loves music and, and uses music to, because going back to your discussion, I use music to, one, make me feel very happy, and in our stressful veterinary lives, that's what we need. So it really helps me with my work-life balance. And I use music when I'm paint. So I'm a total E person, so I love people. But when I paint, I cannot have anybody around me. And then I use music. I listen to music. I listen to the emotion of music. And that's what I put on the canvas. And it brings me in a trance that... If a person will be there, I cannot be in. So it's really, really interesting that music can pull you away from wherever you are and put you in into this space where suddenly things come to life that you normally either repress or, you know, it's amazing what music can do for you if it hits the right tone. You know, you're a surgeon mm-hmm. by training. Did you have music on when you were operating yeah all the time and i think for for me it is very very good question because for me people were sometimes distracting i was in a university setting so i didn't have one person but i had a lot of students a lot of interns residents and that sort of things and i came to the university a long time ago and nobody was allowed to play music in the operating theater and i changed that for myself i said you know i think surgery is artistry 
especially the surgery that I was doing because I was doing oncologic surgery, so there's no rules there. And so I have to be in a, once again, in a sphere where I can make decisions that are not on paper. And, and music is part of putting me in that situation that I'm not thinking about other stresses that are around. So, so that's a really interesting answer because I love music, but I find it stressful to have music on in the theater for yeah. me because I found it a little distracting. Now, my mind, I do not have a very linear mind at all. Like it ping pongs all over the place. Yeah. And surgery is one of the few places that I found on planet Earth. I would follow a procedure because the stakes were quite high. Yeah. But I was doing very different kind of surgery to you for the most part. And, and certainly the oncologic surgery as a general surgeon that I've done, that is one of the features of it that you just don't know what's coming mm. next. So you had to be able to, it's almost like skiing off piste at that yeah. point where you're improvising and using tools and strategies that you've learned as a general principle to then get you through a, a situation that maybe you've never encountered before. So it's interesting that music helps you it almost sounds like it helps you maintain that fluidity. I'm almost sensing like, you know, the motion of a skier going down a hill as you're finding your path and finding your way. Yeah, and that's exactly it. And I think it's also soothing for the people that are around you because sometimes the OR can be quite stressful, <laughs> especially for young people that are not used to the ways how, because you need to be serious there. Yes. And this music kind of pulls them into the same space that they can say, hey, right. this guy is pretty relaxed because he's using music. And, and for me, I have this really strange thing. This might not be that interesting, but if I have a laser beam focus on certain topics. So if, for instance, if we're in a big bar and there's thousands of people there and everybody's talking, that sort of things, and there's one television screen, I can focus on the television screen and I miss anything else. Right. That's why when I go for dinner with my partner, he says, we're not going to a restaurant where there's any television screens because I'm going to lose you. Right. Completely. Yeah. And, I don't even know what's on the television screen. It's just this focus that I have. And that's the same in surgery. I can focus on finishing that surgery and then kind of zone out everybody else. Yeah. And I'm even zoning out the music, but the music is playing in the background. The people are in the background. And then, you know, I can unfocus again. Yeah. For Because when you do, for instance, if you do a lot of suturing, or I most of the time had my students do the suturing, I can just totally relax and then focus on the rest of the stuff that what I'm doing. Would you be tired? Would that leave you feeling more tired or more energized after doing surgery? Like, how did you feel at the end of the day? So people give me energy. Yeah. And so the more people that are around me, the more energy I get. So yeah. I'm, I, I'm an energy vampire. So, <laughs> so the more, you know, I love being around people. So that gives me a lot of energy. If you do some surgeries that take more than four hours, that's draining at a certain point. Yeah. So, and, and I think it's also because you don't eat and you don't drink. And right. so you're standing and you have to be very, very careful how you stand to not, you know, hurt your back and all the other stuff. So, so it's interesting depending also on the result of the surgery. So yes, I feel tired after surgery, but if the results, if I'm happy with what happened, I feel there's this endorphin release that gives you energy again so it is kind of this strange combination if i would do space all day i probably would be dead at the end of the day because at a certain point if you do a lot of surgeries the same way all over that's why i'm not an orthopedic surgeon i will not be able to do stifles all day because it would one drive me nuts and two 
it will kind of drain the energy in a wrong way. And that's why I love oncologic surgery, because like you say, you never know what you get. Yeah, It is always different. It's always kind of exciting. It's triggering me. And the results sometimes are good and sometimes they're bad. And this gives me a different kind of energy again. So I'm going to move tack slightly here, but you are, to my mind anyway, you're not an easy person to put into any particular bucket or category for me, Yola. Where are we going? (laughs) (laughs) So, and I don't mean like you're like walking contradictions. That's not what I mean here, but you're not easy to categorize. And I think partly, and maybe this is reflective of the way that your mind works. And Mm. and it's really interesting to hear your your passion for for the arts, actually. You graduate from Utrecht University. Mm Mm-hmm. You go down a surgical training discipline. You end up working at the top of corporate affairs in veterinary medicine within Hills. How do the dots connect there? Because it's not a normal career journey. And then within, then this, this is kind of fractal for me as well, because watching you and the way you operate in the industry is also very unconventional. Mm. So you're not what I would describe as the archetypal person in corporate medicine or in corporate life. Mm. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to anyone in corporate life, but you seem to me to think quite a lot of the time outside the box and you're doing things that almost make it hard to pin you down to any one area. So good examples being, you know, you've set up a little, little wolf pack almost to go chasing technology and just explore and create. There's just, it's almost like a think tank of mm-hmm. people who have that sort of shared passion. You're, I had just conversations with you and, and seeing the way you, you work within Hills, you seem to have a, a certain freedom to sort of almost, I guess a football analogy is quite nice here is, you know, a midfielder that sort of actually just dr- almost a box to box player. So just drifts around the, like Lionel Messi sort mm-hmm. of drifts in and out of again, a pass here, pass there, no pop up and score going like, where does that guy actually play? And, and so I hope, I hope that doesn't come off disrespectfully, but I think it probably is reflective of the way that your mind works. But I'm curious about so many things. And, and the first question, I guess, that's in there is how did you wind up going from surgery to working within hills yeah yeah so the journey is quite long and interesting i think i I think we need to go back so (laughs) when i so in holland as when you're in i think you call it secondary school yeah when you're in secondary school you have to choose your topics of where you want to go so i think in holland education is much more even the veterinary education it's much more okay what do you want to do and then you get the subjects and the topics and it prepares you for your next step so when that happened to me they uh, they did a psychological test which they do in holland uh, with kids which i which i love and there were two things that came out of the psychological test one is i either should be a cook or i should do something in forestry Okay. And so when I got that test, I was like, oh, yeah, but I want to be an air fighter pilot. How did that go? Yeah. So I chose something completely different. So I said, no, no, I'm not listening to those psychological tests anyway. I'm going to be an air fighter pilot. So I did this subject. They were all for air fighter pilots. And then I don't know what happened. Uh, so I didn't think about veterinary medicine at all during my whole pre-studies as a matter of fact and i didn't even so this have this is your like 15 to 17 yeah i didn't even have biology 
yeah. you know, for instance. Right. You know, that's kind of essential. <laughs> and then suddenly I had this strange change in my brain that said, hey, you know what? Maybe I should be a veterinarian. And, and, and the reason for that is when I was really young, I was teaming up with a local veterinarian and I just was his little hand and running around behind cows and that sort of things and i really loved it so so i said maybe i should do veterinary medicine and i applied for veterinary medicine i and in in holland you have a very difficult system at that time where you have a lottery and they look at your grades and my grades were pretty good but it was very tough to get in it's one tour so so there were a hundred spots for a thousand people so one to ten so i didn't get in and then i was like okay so what is the next thing i really like i'm a person that is quite driven by emotion so what's the next thing i really like and it was history right nothing to do with veterinary medicine or anything so i did a year of history i totally flunked almost every test that i did there but i had the best year of my life yeah and the reason that i wanted to do history was i wanted to be an archaeologist right i'd loved egyptology so that was my passion to do history and you had to do two years of history three years of history to get into archaeology and then archaeology and then i saw myself sitting in uh, the nile delta uh, finding the new tomb of uh, tutankhamun or whatever yeah so that was the idea and at that point i was able to read hieroglyphs at that time so i was that that i mean it's crazy you know i i was able to read hieroglyphs but history was not my forte Obviously, as I failed most of the tests, as I said before, because it was all modern history, so economics and whatever. So that was not me. So I was luckily the next year I got into vet school. I had my year of partying. So I was so dedicated. You were dedicated to partying or dedicated to? In the first year, I was dedicated to partying. In the <laughs> second year, I was dedicated to veterinary medicine. And the vet school in Holland is a six, six and a half year program. It's very tough. How did you wheel back to veterinary medicine? So you, you bounced to history, archaeology. Yes, so How did you because, get back on track? Uh, because I was, that was the second year of the lottery. Okay. So I just tried it again. Okay. And, you know, I was kind of... Do you do anything different to get in second time around? No, because it's a lottery. It's oh, just, so it's pure, just luck. pure lottery. That's, that's it. You don't have to do anything else. So I was pure lucky that I got in the second time. And, uh, and so then I started. And, and during my... And this probably shows once again my fluttering personality is i didn't know if i wanted to do companion animal if i wanted to do cows if i wanted to do horses so i cut cow uh shoes and i did all sorts of stuff just to find out what i liked the most and at a certain point in my career after four years of uh, veterinary medicine um one of my teachers who was wonderful professor mouchstay who said you know what you really need to do is with the personality that you have is don't only look at what we do in Utrecht, but you really need to go outside of this university. And I would suggest you to go to America. So what I would do is just send a couple of letters to some schools in America. I don't guarantee that you get in. And I had no clue, obviously, because this was, he was the first one. So I did. And uh, I was surprised. I wrote to five schools, I think, and was surprised to get five letters of people, you know, saying, hey, that's, that's really cool, you're a student. That was still in the years that it was relatively easy to get in, I guess. And so the first one was from the University of Georgia, and it was such a wonderful letter. The person, and I still remember her name, Brenda Horton, re responded, and she was the academic affairs assistant or something like that. And I remember that, and it was such a wonderful letter. And she said, yeah, would love to have you. So... With that, I went seven months as a student, as an extern to the University of Georgia, and 
that was a complete eye opener for companion animal medicine. And since then, I'm just totally hooked there. And so I had seven months in Georgia. I was part of the school of 87, a completely different structure than Utrecht. Completely different structure. Utrecht was really top-down education. There it was. You know, any anything was, you're the student. You have to, you know, excel. And so, you know, there's a huge difference between the U.S. and Holland and how people look at how to excel. Yeah. What are the differences there then? So in Holland, if you stick out, that's not good. So this is almost tall poppy syndrome. Yes. Same so, as Australia. So really what you want to do is you want to be part of the masses and you want to really work hard and you want to, it's the group that excels. It's not the person. In the U.S., when I came there, it's the individual that excels. So you better be the best of the class. In Utrecht, I never thought about, you know, we don't even have a ranking. So because when I applied for my internship in the U.S., they said, okay, can you give the percentile that you're in your class? It was impossible. Right. You know, I had to go like 15 different people to say, okay, can you at least say if I'm in the top 10%, maybe the top 5%? And it was impossible because they didn't look at it. So very often it was pale fast. Yeah. In the U.S., it was so. I remember my ophthalmology student rotation. It was one, zero to a hundred. Okay, hundred was kind of impossible to get, but people were, you know, you needed to get a ninety plus, otherwise right. you were a failure. Right. And for me, as a European student, when I came in, I was that was an eye opener. I was like, what? Why? Is that healthy? Like, which one of the two do you think is better? I think it needs to be a combination. Because, right. you know, the inertness of what happened in Utrecht at a certain point and the extreme, what I call sport vetting here, they're both unhealthy. Right. So you need to kind of have a – We got what I took back to Utrecht was you need to have a healthy competition yep. to at least show the people that – want to excel that they excel. Yep. Because we, you know, for instance, we didn't have awards for students that were the best and that sort of things. And that's what I think is healthy. The unhealthy part here is that it can destroy your life if you are not the top, which is, you know, you can be a C student and have an absolute fantastic career. And when their medicine gives opens so many doors to be successful and you don't have to be an A student to be successful, and that's something I got from Holland. You know, from Holland, they taught me you have to be nice to people. You have to be a good person. You have to do a good job. Good is good enough. And then, yeah, if you can combine a little bit, like if you feel that you excel in something, that's what you have to go for. But you go for it because you like it, not because you have to. Right. And that sounds like that's, a, you know, it's contributory to this whole blight of perfectionism that, that seemed mm-hmm. to dog a lot of veterinarians maybe more so young veterinarians I, I, I have no scientific basis for saying that but it's one of the things we talk about so much now or hear said over and over is and you hear of students burning out now because they're so stressed about getting the best marks possible I, I forget who said this I said the A students will end up you know academia some kind the B students will end up working in practice and the C students will be hiring everybody, all the A's and the B students. And there certainly seems to be something to, you know, the C students, everyone's got something to contribute, but the C students are working on other bits of their game than just exams, exams, exams. Everybody tries to put 
things into, you know, age buckets, which I'm not a big fan of. During my student period, it was very stressful too. It's it's different times. I realize that, but I remember that we had a student that committed suicide, for instance, which was a huge blow to everybody. Um, the stress, it, veterinary medicine is just a very stressful profession. And I think that you excel in veterinary medicine if you can balance the stress that you have during your studies, but also afterwards with the positive things that you do and the life-work balance. Because another thing that uh, Holland, Scandinavia is very famous for is work-life balance. For instance, you know, in Scandinavia, and we talked about that yesterday a little bit during the opening ceremony at the WPC where we are right now, is that you get a year off both parents if you know if you have a baby yeah which is very healthy yeah here you get two weeks off i mean which is very unhealthy and so that work-life balance which the newer generations seem to focus and care about a little bit more which is completely healthy and please keep on doing that is something that either rescues you from veterinary medicine and your further career and burn down burn out than if you don't focus on it. So I think that that's something. I'm a workaholic, and I totally, anybody that tells me that I'm a workaholic, I will say, yes, that's true. But I'm a workaholic that knows how to enjoy his time off. So in my career, I do normally five-year stints yeah. for me. Yeah. And so I look at, okay, what wanna do I want to reach in five years? And then after the five years, I reevaluate and then I say, okay, is there anything else that I would like to do? So I did this this wonderful academic career where I started as, you know, I went to the US to do an internship and a residency and a oncology fellowship. And the good thing about the US is if you want to do something and if you want to achieve something, you can do it. Absolutely amazing. The opportunities that you have here and the support that you get to excel. That's amazing. And then I went through an academic career in Holland. Uh, my grandmother was really sick, so I was, I was happy to go home to be with her. And I did the assistant professor, social professor, full professor in Copenhagen, full professor in Holland. And every five years, I had a different goal and a goal set, uh, mindset. And so, yes, I like to flutter. I like to find out different things, how I can improve either myself, my environment, whatever. And you do need to have this ability to be able to switch around because otherwise you're stuck, which is fine too. If you want to have a job for the next 30 years that's exactly the same and you do the same procedures and you do the same stuff, good for you. It's just not for me. I need this challenge. I need this change. That's how my personality and how my brain works a little bit. So spaying every day, every dog, every time the same no, I couldn't do that. As a matter of fact, this this funny story. So I hated space until I started doing laparoscopic space. So in the last couple of years in my career at university, I really focused on endoscopic surgery, especially endoscopic tumor surgery. And that reinvented and revitalized my love for surgery. So to anybody in practice that is burned out on surgery or anything they do, find something that interests you and start focusing on that to re-energize yourself because that's what it's all about. 
You spend a lot of time on the road, and I think these two things are maybe interconnected, these two questions. So, and a really concern about work-life balance and, mm-hmm. and being energized. So you describe yourself as a workaholic, and you spend a lot of time traveling um, with the role that you have and networking, and you can just see that's just a, a space that you, you you excel in. Some people seem to burn out on very little, like relatively little number of hours per week let's say on something and i always am curious as to why some people can work like absolute beasts like you Mm -hmm. like the number of hours that you put into your role per week i imagine is quite big versus you know so let's say and and you can you can fill in the numbers let's say you might work somewhere between 60 to 80 hours in a week versus you might have a young veterinarian who's working you know a 40 hour week and that person's burning out and you're just crushing it and, and can like some people are like the energizer bunny and just can keep going i wonder if that's a connection to doing something you love and actually having taken time to think about that which it sounds like that's something you put a lot of thought process into so although it looks from the outside like you've pinballed around there's a strategic process of planning that's gone on in there yeah the question muddled up in there is is that one of the antidotes to Almost the disconnect that it seems to be happening with it is the younger generation of vets. I mean, I suspect that people have always struggled a little bit in veterinary medicine, and it's not just a, a recent phenomenon, but it seems more prevalent now. What tools would you recommend to you know young doctors, or what processes have served you well in the planning of your career to maintain your your energy? The keyhole surgery is a great example there. Have you managed to almost proceduralize a way of finding? the spark because it was almost like you know maybe burnout's the wrong word but I'm, I'm not in love with surgery anymore there's a technology mm. and there's another little strand to your life that's coming through here is technology is clearly you know you're a magpie for, for things like that so oh there's there's something there i'll get into keyhole and then boom the spark sets a fire blaze and now you're re-engaged how do people go about finding those sparks how do they do that? I, I get the sense people are quite lost in their career. Like they always, they want it to be a vet and they achieve it. Now what? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that we should not understress the fact that burnout is a very complex issue. Right. And I feel for anybody that has, that goes into veterinary medicine has a really, really busy job, stressful job, has to deal with a lot of emotions in combination with a huge debt, a huge expectation of everybody surrounding you because now you're a doctor suddenly and you have to deal with it. And I think we're not doing a really good job in catching those people. So we're really good in in helping students and 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 you know helping them at school and there's a lot of professional engagement there. And then we just drop them in the deep and just let them go and hope that wherever they go they will pick up. And then we find out, no, they don't because they don't know how to deal with that. And so we put a lot of pressure on young people, I think, and don't set their expectations right. So I don't think it's their problem. It's our problem. I think we really need to, to put a little bit more emphasis on the fact like, what are the tools that we can give them to deal with this? Because we all went through it. It's nothing to do with this generation. We all went through it. You know, the first GDV that I had to do, I was scared shitless. I cannot remember how much stress I had, especially when I found out that it was a 
a joke from someone that they pulled on me that I had my first GDV. So I was reading the books and I was getting all nervous and that sort of things. And then I had to do my first one and it was it was nerve wracking. Wait, you have to tell the story of the joke. Oh, so my fellow resident, she thought it was really funny to uh, have someone call in uh, that a GDV. <laughs> so you're was, on call. I was on call uh, waiting for my first case. And she knew I was uh, nervous, so she uh, had someone call in that there was an immediate GDV coming in, and uh, the dog was really bad, and they needed the best surgeon ever. And uh, and I was like, oh my god, I was flipping through the books, and you know, getting all nervous, setting the whole table up, and that sort of things. And then I was like, where is my anesthetist? Why is nobody coming in? You know. And then it was a joke after all, and she was laughing. So, but. It is just to stress the fact that it is very, very stressful in the beginning. And it takes a couple of years to get into the flow of things. The second part of your question was, how can you keep the spark going? Because I think for me, the beginning, that's the part I like. So I get energized by that. But I can imagine a lot of people don't. The risk for me is, how do you keep that energy up? And that is by investing in things that you really like to do one so for instance as an example people always say you travel so much it's so horrible to travel if i drive to the airport i think i'm going on a holiday i don't know why it is i enjoy being in place i enjoy being in airports i just it is crazy you know i enjoy getting my starbucks at the airport it's just those little things that make my day. I know when I'm in an airplane, nobody will disturb me, so I can do the things that I need to do. I can listen to my audiobooks. I'm just a total addict to audiobooks. So, um, you know, there's these things that I know that I can do that I cannot do in my normal life, which give me energy and rest. The risk that I have is that I get bored by something. And maybe that's also why I always are looking outside of my boundaries, because I know that one, I can learn. Two, I can do things that other people don't do. And that gives me a lot of enjoyment. So I am normally kicking every structure that has been there for a long time. I'm kicking that over because I want to see what will happen if we will try this out. It will either fail really badly or it will be very successful. And I think that is, for me, a way of keeping that energy flow going and my interest going too. That might actually be one of the things that, that makes you seem very not corporate to me mm. because that attitude toward, really that's an attitude toward risk, which as you start to climb a career ladder, you know, failure is not viewed kindly. In yeah, I, I don't think I totally agree with it. I think that people don't understand the corporate world that much. Corporate has to innovate. So yeah. they have to do this all the time, but it's much more behind a protection wall because you know they don't want to talk to about what they're innovation uh, innovating about and i think if i look at hills i mean that was an eye-opener for me when i came there how innovative these people are and how much energy there's in there it's just there is rules and regulations and structure behind it um what i think i bring is i'm more what i call a holistic innovator so i'm able to adapt to marketing i'm able to adapt to the sales force i'm able to adapt to the professional part and then still push them a little bit and say hey why are you doing this all the time i feel like i'm an outsider inside and that makes a lot of people uncomfortable but it also makes people allow me to do that and say okay here's this crazy guy from holland that has this crazy idea and you know i think it will fail completely but maybe we should try it and see what it works. And then they find out, oh, this is really cool. 
and then then it works but i'm not saying that everything i say is is golden absolutely not you know i've i've you know i, I was thinking by skating you know if i skate in the skating ring which dutch people are really good at except for me i follow my butt quite a lot but i'm not afraid for that as a matter of fact i kind of like that so i've initiated a lot of things that are complete failures and every time i do that i learn a little bit more about that failure which makes the next time more successful and because i'm an e-personality i like people and even if people don't agree with me completely then i will still adapt my way to think about okay why are they so against this and how can i kind of influence them to see it the other way and so i'm a big eye too so i love you know the human psyche how to work with people and so innovation and influencing are two big things that started from the beginning when i was really young with a family that was very musical and artistic that showed me around to look outside of you know being a little child so i remember that my mother took me to so she was a professional harpist played in operas so she took me to the opera and i was like you know eight or smaller I didn't understand anything about it. I thought, this, why were these ladies screaming so hard? And that sort of thing. So the music didn't hit me there. But what I thought was amazing is my mother was in the, in the little area down, you know, and I could wave at her and she was at her harp and there was this beautiful scenery with these colors and these beautiful dresses. And I remember that. I mean, she allowed me to be there and enjoy that. And I think a lot of people are protecting their children. So like, you know, we shouldn't do that because they won't understand you don't know what they understand. So allowing people to go outside of the box, instead of trying to protect them, say, if you stay in the box, everything will be safe, you'll be fantastic. Now try them to push them out. And I think that's what we did when we went to, with a group, This you talked about the animal farm group. We did that with the group because we brought them to CES, so the Consumer Electronics Show, completely non-related to our profession. But we just pushed them there and said, okay, I want you to walk around and I want you to apply what we see here to veneer medicine. We had three amazing days. And, you know, I think for everybody, it was, it was this out of the box idea that everybody was like, I would love to go to CES, you know, that was the attraction. But then what they got out of it was much more, I think. And that's, that's the strength of doing this, something, something like that. Do you, do you do that with your teams within Hills as well? You take people out of what they, they perceive all think to be crazy. their box and put them in a different space? Yeah, I, I tend to do that. You know, there's people are there for a reason. And so that's what their work is. And I'm, I'm not trying to be too much of a distraction because there's a difference between distraction and pushing them a little bit on going a little outside of their normal thinking pattern. So you have to be a little careful here. What counts as distraction? My biggest risk is that i'll be running way ahead and i'm looking around and hey nobody's following me so i'm this person that is just you know i'm going for it i in my mind there's this thing going on i see the whole picture i know where we're going but nobody else does and so they are saying yeah i think yola is there you know you see that hill there on he's on top and he's waving at us but we have no clue what he wants because he's in this little space so let him go so what you really need to do with these kind of things is to get your team involved and get them enthusiastic about it and really get the passion out of it and also look in your team member everybody has something to offer and 
it is the trick to one show your appreciation that they're doing that but also show the power of what they're doing to themselves because a lot of people you know then and you will go back to the burnout you know what am i doing here you know i'm you know this whole thing is so depressing because i don't see anything positive coming out of this what i'm doing right now and you need mentors to help you see that what you're doing is just a, a lot of things amazing and this is what you get out of it and that's how you get your new energy back that's actually a really useful insight that it's almost like people are too close to the they're in almost a level of detail where it's harder to stand back and go, you are making an amazing impact on someone else's life. You are assisting that person's best friend. It's so easy to say, though, because, and I also realize that a lot of the, the veterinarians are are very meticulous. Yep. Uh, they're very detail-oriented. And sometimes it's difficult when you're so detail-oriented to see the big picture. And so for me... What I learned in the, the many years that I've been working together with people is that people are not different, those different people. So I love to work with people that are meticulous, that have lists, that remind me of how important it is to execute things instead yeah. of just to float. Those people need to know that they are essential to my being and my my success or their success or our success. And so I prefer to be in a team that are completely different from me. Of course, there need to be people that have certain assets, but to show your colleagues, your partners, that that's what you want from them and that's what you really want to stimulate, that's the key. That's the key for me, for teamwork. I mean, that's if people ask me, so how do you make your teams, how do you make your teams tick? That's how I do it. Yeah. Are we as veterinarians, and this is probably parallel, I'm just jumping from one track to another a little bit here, but but veterinarians, and, and maybe this is the burnout thing, it's almost like sometimes you feel like we care too much, like we're actually wrapped up and I, our identity is, you know, it's not professional identity, it's also our personal identity, like we, we are vets, this isn't a job, it's, it's, we've, it's almost like we've, you almost can't separate the two out from each other, so when we end up with failure or feeling like we're burned out people i wonder if they have a hard time stepping back from that it's like well what else can you do because one thing that's coming more and more clear to me as i interview more and more people is that almost this is one of the red threads that runs through all of these people that seem the happiest have an outlet away from veterinary medicine they don't associate they don't seem to associate themselves with the identity of being a vet you have music art you have picked yourself up and it's almost like you know it's like you're the, almost the madonna of veterinary medicine you, know, you pick yourself up and recreate yourself doing something else by having you know or you two or something you know it's like okay we've done that did that yeah i got great. a completely different picture when you were talking madonna i was, I like, was oh, not yeah. really <laughs> you, you had a look on your face like yeah. where are you going with this yeah, it's like exactly. a, to that ability to then just reset reinvent and do something else which is you know per, for me i always felt like oh if i stop working in practice what does that mean for me who am i now I, I wonder if that bedevils us sometimes and it's good that you said it because you know so many people scolded me for the fact that i was at the top of my career in academics i was full professor i was as a perfect almost getting the highest spot yep 
and at that time I decided to leave. So it's, it's, that's, yes. And I'm, it's the best decision I made because, you know, I love Hills as a company to work for. I, I think they have taught me so much. And the main reason that I did what that was, I was like, okay, in academic, I will probably go to academic management now. That's the next step. So become a, you know, department head lead or associate dean or even a dean maybe. And I don't feel that I have the tools because I don't have that business savviness. And that's what Hills taught me. I mean, that's the part that I miss. And I think that if I could give anybody an advice is if you're looking for a good paying job just after school, go into an industry job for a couple of years because you will learn so many things that you were not taught in vet school. And I wish I would have done that because I would have been much more successful getting bit of getting grants in and that sort of things because it's a completely different mindset and they teach you the skills that you often do not get taught in veterinary school and so for me i wish i I could have gone back and say hey maybe i should have done a couple of years in uh, in corporate before i became a very successful veterinarian afterwards of course i did it the other way around which is fine too because i think that's the nice thing about veterinary medicine so i just want to stress this you can become anything the education and we go back to the caring part i love the caring part i was an oncologic surgeon so i was dealing with death every day every hour every minute and as a matter of fact i wanted to in one phase of my life i want to be a pediatric oncologist so now you're talking with death with children so there's like a triple whammy going on there that is bad and I spoke in Colorado when I was doing my fellowship with a pediatric oncologist and how, and I said, how do you do it? Because this must be so tough. And that person told me, he said, you know, it is really, really tough, but I also have a on off switch at a certain point where I can say, you know, it's misery all day, but I'm doing so much good. And then I'm biking in, and we're going back to the biking thing. I'm biking in Colorado in the mountains and I'm thinking about the beauty of that surrounding us and and we forget to look outside. Uh, Daniel and I often have a, a saying that say is look at nature. So, you know, you're driving around instead of looking at your iPhone and that sort of things, look outside and see how beautiful it is and that's how you get your energy back and it's it sounds really simple, especially for people that are in this downtrend pattern that feel that everything is against them i mean my suggestion is get help get a mentor get a family member or get professional help to get you out of this because you need to have someone tell you that you know there is something beautiful here going on and the caring part is that's why we do veterinary medicine for me if veterinary medicine was like dentistry sorry dentist or if veterinary medicine was like optometrist that has to sell glasses all day i would not do it i do it because of the caring part and because i work with people and i work with animals and i know i can do good although death is always approaching me in oncology so i know that these animals will die at a certain point but if i can make that journey that they will make through a little better a little nicer a little longer a little less painful that is the present I get back. And, and you know, I, we spoke uh, with the wonderful people of Lab of Love. That's what they do. You know, they make a horrible situation a little better. And then I come home and I, and I think to myself, you know, okay, I had the bad clients. Everybody has them. 
but I also had clients that came back today. And yesterday, this this is a little example. Uh, yesterday, I got a message on my uh, IM, and I'm a big social media freak. So um, yesterday, I got a message on my IM of a lady that I treated her cat, and the cat's called Mace. And she sent me an IM, and I hadn't looked at my IMs because I didn't realize there's a, you know, you can find old IMs that you never responded to. So I found, and, and that was, she sent me that message in 2015. And I reached out to her. I said, I'm very sorry. I missed your message here, but how is Mace doing? And he's still alive. And she sent me this message that I cannot thank you enough because when I came in with my cat, that cat had a death sentence. And you told me, keep hope. Let's make it wonderful. I'm now 15 years later. I still have my cat. And I cannot thank you enough for that. And that is why we do this. It's amazing. Probably a, a good spot to just slightly pivot across. And I just wanted to talk about, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about innovation and and your, your career moving into Hills. Hills are a, a company that have, it's an interesting time to watch the, really the, the non-veterinary pet market there's so much interest and so much activity going on in there, and particularly in the nutrition stakes. I had the pleasure of presenting with Dr. Marge Chandler over in the UK, and you know she was doing this great presentation on pet food myths and you know the sorts of things that you know make us all want to headbutt our consulting room tables when we hear pet owners talking about them. But one of the things that I have been impressed in recent years with Hills, and I was I was curious about how this sort of process works. But the pet food, the food technology that seems to be coming along just now, looks to be hugely interesting. And just the advent of some of the diets that, that are out there. How the heck did anyone come up with the metabolic formula? The stories that I hear from, like, let's let's have it from the horse's mouth. Like, what is in that? And how how do you go from like? Hey, we we have oh, there's things in tomato skin, and there's you know there's like why are certain cultures thinner than other cultures? What is that? How where does that sort of I don't know the story behind the development of that diet, but I'm I'm quite fascinated a by the diet and how it works, but it's actually more the arrival, the thinking that got you to that stage. Yeah. So just a disclaimer: I'm not a nutritionist, so <laughs> I'm a simple surgeon. So I put it in simple surgeon uh, language, but I think that what Hills does, and probably a lot of other big companies do, is that they have a science and technology team that is just completely amazing. And so these diets are based on years and years of research, and they use the most modern techniques, and they test and test and test and so that's something that was an eye-opener for me when I went to industry because I'm a scientist myself so I did a lot of research that was the second thing that I did that I liked the most a lot of research a lot of genetic research biomolecular research it was mainly focused on osteosarcoma genetic changes and that sort of things and then I came to a corporation which you know I thought you know it's about selling food so they just make something up and they sell it but then the amount of research that they put into it is just mind-boggling and I think anybody that goes to our science and technology center or PNC pet nutrition center will see how much love the people give to 
produce these products. So I think that is something that we cannot stress enough. The other thing that I really like is the social good that companies like this do. So for instance, what we do in shelters, in disaster relief and that sort of things, those are all good things. So, and you know, we live in the age of social media. We live in the age of anybody can say anything and then everybody believes right, it. Right, a qualified opinion now of actually course. isn't a degree in research. It's a bunch of thumbs up. That's it. Or let's pull it away from hills a little bit. Veterinarians need to find a way to deal with that because we are not anymore the person in the white coat that says something and everybody believes it. Right. We are the person that says something and then the people will go to their neighbors and their peers and then they ask, you know, the vet said something like this and then what you think and then the neighbor says, that's ridiculous because I heard, I read in the uh, New York Tatler that, you know, this is really bad and they are right because they have the, you know, the proof and there were like uh, two cases that they were had these horrible effects and that's what and and that is where you as a person need to start thinking about okay so why did you do this study why did you do veterinary medicine as a matter of fact the only reason i think is that you learned you weren't in an academic setting to become a academic thinker so an evidence-based thinker and so, yes, a lot of people are not that way. So now you need to start translating that evidence-based thinking into a simple way to your clients that they feel comfortable with your message. And I think that's what companies do really well. They have excellent marketeers. They have excellent salespeople. They have a way how they can distill a message that is very, very complicated on the top and then distill it down to a message that is relatively simple and that people find trust in because trust is a big deal here. And I think that as a veterinarian, we need to do the same thing. So we're probably really good in our job. We're probably really good in our, you know, all the devices that we have and the tools and that sort of things. We might not be always that good in giving the client the message that we want to give. And I think that Eric Garcia and I did a lecture together in Singapore about social media and how you come over. And what we do is we look at websites and you did the same thing with Andy Rock, which I love by the way, where we look at websites and how people portray themselves as veterinarians. And it's just amazing. So they talk about the laser machine for like you know very, very long and lots of pictures and nobody understands anything about it except for the guy that bought it who just read the instructions and kind of copied it right on his, uh, his web page. While the owner really wants to know that this laser up, um, machine is helping their pet to become more healthy and they want to listen to other people that went under the treatment and that sort of thing. So there's this whole idea of how you can translate your message better to the pet owner. And I think that's where a huge change can be made. It's a big opportunity. It is, it is. And, and, and I focus on the fact that we need to focus on that the vet is in the center of this discussion. Right. It feels like almost, you know, the evidence, the pyramid of evidence-based medicine if you wrote alongside that pyramid the way that the evidence tends to get communicated, if you then flipped that pyramid upside down but you kept the communication route and the style, it's how do you translate an evidence-based peer-reviewed double-blinded study into a tabloid headline? Vet does 200 peer-reviewed cases and then this happened. You know, kind of click thing. 
we're not very good at it that. It sounds very simplistic. I think that, that there's a combination because what I love about veterinary medicine is that we are so detail-oriented and we, we know how to read the papers and we should read the papers and we should read the... But then the translation part often gets lost sometimes. And I think that the uh, that's the challenge. That's the challenge that we have in this world. And you know that I love social media. I get amused by the reactions that I sometimes get. I mean, sometimes they're totally crazy. There are ways how you can deal with it. So if you're interested or you're afraid for it, go to some of the lectures. There's some excellent social media lecturers that can tell you the basic details. I would not venture into social media with no clue because that's when you're going to make the mistake. So, so there is so, there are so many ways you can interact the right way in this. And then you can find out that there's a lot of fun going on there too. And it's not all negative. And yes, there's also negativity there, but that's anywhere. I mean, even if you, if I sit in a plane and I say I'm a veterinarian, people will respond to me in either positive or negative ways. So if I say I work for Hills, people will say, positive things and negative things that's part of life you have to be able to deal with that in a way that you say okay i'm going to take this and i think uh you know we interviewed mayim yesterday she said the same thing you know if you are pregnant people try to give you advice on all sorts of things you can either be really upset about it because people always know it better than you do but you can also say oh that was very interesting information thank you very much yeah i'll, I'll consider it so, and then you think whatever you know a little pivot to positive. I like it. Right. So let's let's move over. I'm going to hit us into the the shorter form questions Ooh, now. This is always the most exciting part. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I like it all, but there's probably four or five question areas on I've written down in my notebook, and we've covered no more than two. Oh gosh. So yeah, we have to come back now. I yeah. think so. That's that's the way it's shaping up. All right. So, what are you most proud of in your career and why? And although they're short questions, you can give, you know, bearing in mind, you've probably got a million important meetings to get to. You can give as long or short answers as you like. So, I think I'm most proud of the the wonderful people I've met in my life and have been able to help them to become what they are. So, I think that is what Steve Withrow taught me when I was in my early career what Freek Meutsteger taught me when I was in my early career, where they help other people achieve these amazing things. And so I've been lucky to work with the best of the best on many, many fields. And when I see how successful they are now, that gives me a lot of energy. I love that part. Perhaps on that tack, what is the thing you do better than anybody else? What's your superpower? Yeah, that's a good one. Of course, I can fly, but that doesn't count. <laughs> it was amazing. You didn't even have to use the elevator to no, get here. No, I just came outside. I just flew had, through the window. And then I just moved through the window because <laughs> I can move through hard spaces too. I think my superpower is being around people. I respect almost anybody. And even if I don't agree with people, I can respect them for what they do. So I know there is people that say the craziest things. And I can then go back and say, say, if I was in that situation, would I say it? Probably not exactly the same, but I can show empathy. And that probably comes from my background of being an oncologic surgeon where emotions are so... I mean, they're so high strung there and you have to deal with that in a relative way. So I think that's my superpower and I love it. I mean, I love people. I love, just imagine that we would be all on a 
little island alone. Sometimes we wish that we're there. I mean, that would drive me nuts. So, because I need my people. I need, I need to be around people and get that energy. Like I said, I'm that's a, that, that's I'm a vampire. Eye. That's your eye there, isn't it? Let's imagine you are, you're now the god of veterinary medicine. If you could change one thing about this profession, what would you change? For the US, I would change the financial dependency immediately for anybody. So I wish that I could acquit every debt any student has because I think in the US that's the biggest problem right now that we're dealing with. And if I look at the world, once again, I think that uh, if I could change the attitude of people to look a little beyond what they're doing every day and the negativity that sometimes goes around it and find this little positive spark somewhere that gives them that energy to go on and to enjoy their life. It could be their family. So my mantra is who haven't you hugged lately? <laughs> just walk to that person and give them a big hug. Love it. Just to show that you care. So what was the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Yeah, that's an easy one. So I think that was the one that we refer to him, Professor Mertzsteg, that came to me and said, you should go to the US to expand your borders. That has changed my life. I mean, that's something that I will remember ever but going even further back, I think, like I said, my parents and the inspiration that they gave me, you know, to have two loving parents that see whatever you want them to see in you and stimulate you to do whatever you want. That is, that is powerful. It's a gift. And what was the worst piece of advice you've received or given? Oh, let's go to the <laughs> given part. I've given so many <laughs> bad advices in my life. I think for me, the worst advice that I probably have given in my life, I've, I've, you know, did, I've, I've tutored a lot of students in my life. And so sometimes students came to me with questions about, you know, what should I do in my career? Can I do this? Can I do, can I not do this? And be limited by really what you, you know, you want them to succeed in their career. But sometimes, I probably should have said, is this really what you want to do? It's a sensitivity thing because you know you probably should be more honest. And I'm Dutch. I'm not afraid to say anything. But sometimes it's better to tell the truth to someone than to be what we call a, a weak healer because it sometimes it's better to say, hey, this might not be the thing for you to do. And I can remember one case that I should have said that and I didn't. And so then it took a year or two for that person to totally burn out. And I feel still bad about that. So be honest with yourself, one, and be honest with the other. That's really what I'm trying to say. Now, you mentioned your love of audiobooks recently. What's, what's your favorite audiobook? In oh, I have so many. So, so the latest favorite, and I have to thank Tom Bone for that, the NAVC uh, CEO. Uh, he just uh, showed me the 60 seconds, science 60 seconds. It's just unbelievable. It's 60 seconds of science. You know, everybody in veterinary medicine, we're all scientists, so we love it. It only takes 60 seconds. And the reason that we were talking about that in our podcast was the fact how difficult it is to put your science project into 60 seconds. That is a gift. So Maya was here once again and she was talking and when she got into her PhD, she went berserk and she, because you're so focused on it and you love what you're saying and that sort of things and then put that in 60 seconds. That's amazing. So that is a podcast that I live in, listen to every day. 
It's my 60 seconds of science and did all sorts of various topics. Other ones are, I love Radiolab, I love Serial, and I realized that any episode of those programs take about one to two years to make. The amount of research and detail and production is insane. Yes, Yes, and then we I mean, are these here. These things do sound like they're thrown together. I know, but not. I know. That's amazing, and 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 so we are here, and we we both make podcasts. So you have this amazing podcast that I'm on right now. We're making the Per Podcast, which is focused on cats, on cat medicine and cat surgery. And the reason that we did that was there is a kind of a void there. There's not a lot of information about cats, and you know you have to have the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery, which I love, to be able to read anything about cats, or you have to buy these really big books. So we wanted to change how you got this information these podcasts in its way i mean there still takes a lot of time to make these but the joy that you get out of them is just unbelievable so that's a passion of mine and you know yes i'm a workaholic but being able to make these podcasts once again gives me energy because i love what i'm doing and that's the educator in me. It is working with Dr. Susan Little who is the most amazing person ever. She's so much fun. And then working with these wonderful talents in veterinary medicine and learning from them is just, that's inspiring. Our podcast is around 20, 30 minutes, so they're relatively short. I'm in the car all the time, so I drive a lot. Most of the time my trips are 20, 30 to 60 minutes, so that's just enough time to listen to the news and listen to a podcast, and that's uh, what we're going for. There's so many really good ones, by the way, and lately, but everybody's different, so. It's a great way just to change your dead time into something really valuable yeah you know how i get to the podcast is i was not a big book reader because you have to read so much for veterinary medicine so i came home and i couldn't i couldn't do that anymore my eyes were tired etc etc especially after surgery so i discovered audiobooks yeah and so i'm a big audiobook addict and i tried it out with two books to see if I liked it. Someone else told me to do it. And uh, I read a David Sedaris book, or I listened to a David Sedaris book and almost fell off my bike of laughing because it was so funny. And then I listened to Anna Karenina, which is this huge, like 1500 pages book, 37 hours of audiobook. Wow. And I said to myself, if I can survive that, then I'm addicted. And it was amazing. Yeah. So, because these are actors that do it. I mean, it's not that someone is just reading up their book. These are true actors that really have beautiful intonation. It's kind of an art to listen to. So I love that. Incredible stuff. Okay, if you could give yourself one piece of advice back at graduation, what would it be? You can pop out in your time machine. Uh, yeah, except for going to uh, uh, look into, look further than what you're destined to do or what you think you have to do. So look at all the options that you have, including corporate, including whatever other things are there. But I think the best piece, like like I said, the best piece I've advised that I got was look further than your little circle. And I think the good thing about the US is that nobody's really stuck in their little community. Often they think about states and going to other places. So they're much more movable than I used to be in Holland. But for me, going to another country, seeing another culture, if it's only for like a month, go somewhere else. So take a little bit of time for yourself. So don't immediately start working, which a lot of people tend to do. Take a month off, go to a completely different country, work in a clinic there if you want to or not. Just put a little bit of emphasis on yourself, see a different culture, and then start this beautiful career. 
Okay, second to last, what's the most controversial thing people don't know about you but really matters? I think I already said my hieroglyphs, uh, reading ability. I'm fast that we can I almost know. do a whole episode. I know, that, so, but uh, you know, it's getting a little rusty probably now. But it probably has to do with the fact that I'm a color figure person. So when you look at painters you can be either really technical or you can be really color oriented and i found out that i'm a person that really looks at structures and color so the interesting thing is when you do abstract painting which is the thing that i like the most is you can see anything in it so you have to be able to so i can look at a painting and look at it for a long long time and then i things start happening in there and that's for everybody different so some people say oh god that looks ugly and then even a completely white frame, you can see things in there that trigger you. So, so I think that is, it's not completely crazy to see something in nothing. And maybe that's the power of Mark Rothko, those paintings I love. Exactly. I'll never be able to afford one, I suspect, but you can make one yourself. I, you're right. My, my, my no. daughter drew me one. We did a little exercise. That's and she, exactly she painted one. I'm like, the good thing about veterinarians, I think veterinarians are artists. So everybody that I talk to, they do something. So it could be wood cutting. It could be, you know, painting. They, you know, it could be house renovating, but vets are very well. They're broadly educated and they often have this little artist thing in them. And that's what you have to cultivate. Yeah. That is so true. That is so true. All right, last one, Yola, mm. for this round anyway. So you're into your social media. So if you can send one tweet and it can light up every phone in the world, what would you send? Probably look around and see the beauty. I love it. Yola, an absolute pleasure to have you on, get to know you a bit more. Thank you Thank so you. much for your time. Thank you for connecting people, for seeing patterns in the world that maybe others aren't seeing and um i think i think veterinary medicine like we benefit greatly as a mass for for your input so thanks for everything you do thank you very much appreciate it and thank you for what you're doing because uh, i love your podcast so thank you folks just me before you jump off two or three things that are really really important number one please reach out to yola and share him some blunt dissection love our guests love getting the feedback so please reach out and tell them what you got from the podcast number two please tell your friends about the podcast these things grow by word of mouth and your recommendation is the most important thank you that you can give me Number three, don't miss an episode. Subscribe on iTunes or jump on drdavenickel.com and join the mailing list. That is it. That is all I ask of you. So until next time, please remember the mantra. Be safe, be well, and be happy. Dr. Dave, out. Out.